Well, last Monday, October 31st, was a very significant day. Actually, I'm not referring to Halloween. In 1517, 499 years ago, a German monk named Martin Luther nailed 95 theses on a church door calling for reformation within the Catholic Church. His efforts were rebuffed and led to the establishment of new churches outside of the Catholic Church and hence was called the Protestant Reformation, one of the most important events in history. You may or may not be sitting here today if it was not for this event. That's how significant it was. Luther himself was a very fascinating story. He had served in a monastery for years, but was distraught over his own spiritual condition. Now, he didn't live a debauched life. In fact, he was the exact opposite. He tried to do everything he could to please God. He prayed. He fasted. But he realized his heart was laden with sin and that all of his best efforts were futile. He feared God, but over time grew to despise Him because of His guilt and of His shame. And though He was outwardly righteous, He was in bondage to His sin and guilt. He lived a pretty tortured existence there during this time. One day, He was sent off to the city of Wittenberg where He was promoted to go and become a professor of theology. While he was studying the book of Romans, he came upon chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, which says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, The righteous shall live by faith. So Luther wrestled with these verses until he discovered that the path to salvation was unlike anything that he had thought of before. Let me read a description of his experience. He says, quote, Night and day I pondered until I saw the connection between the justice of God and the statement, the just shall live by faith. Then I grasped that the justice of God is that righteousness by which through grace and sheer mercy God justifies us through faith. Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. The whole of Scripture took on new meaning and whereas before the justice of God had filled me with hate, now it became to me inexpressibly sweet and great love. The passage became to me the gate to heaven. Luther realized that the righteousness spoken of here in Romans is what God gives freely to His people when they believe in Jesus Christ. He realized that salvation was by grace alone. With no mixture of our human works, it was all God's grace which of course ran contrary to the teachings of the Roman Catholic Church. And God used Luther to bring the church back to the true gospel. 
Now, part of Luther's story is his intense and deep struggle with guilt. His conscience was deeply burdened, and he sought relief from his guilt. And Luther, I believe, is not alone. While we may not be to the same degree as Luther, all people struggle with guilt, struggling and searching for relief. In my mind, people typically will handle guilt in one of two ways. One way is to deny our guilt. Deny our guilt. And we'll do this in various ways. We're creative in how we go about this. Uh, We might deny our guilt by just kind of pushing it out of our minds. We don't want to think about the things we've said or done. And so we just kind of, it hits us and bounces right off, and we just don't even want to acknowledge it. Or we... Deny our guilt by comparing ourselves to others. We ease our own guilt by focusing on someone else who does worse in our eyes than we do, right? And so we might say, well, I might be cold and indifferent to my spouse, but at least I don't yell and scream like my parents did. Or we might say, well, I know I fudged on those uh, travel reimbursement figures, but At least I don't cheat on my taxes like Steve does over there. Do you see how we do that? Or we might try to deny our guilt by rationalizing it away. Maybe we're not comparing and searching around, but we just, there's always an excuse for our guilt. There's always a reason that gets us off the hook. I read about an incident where a man was arrested for stealing a parked car at a cemetery. And he told the judge, well, since the car was parked at the seminary, I just assumed that the driver was dead. (laughs) Coming up with anything we can, right? So a lot of times we try to to deny our guilt. That's one popular way. I think the other way we like to go about it is we like to work off our guilt, kind of like Luther was trying. We don't deny our guilt, but we try to work it off. We know that we're guilty, so we think if we just work hard at various things, that we'll get rid of it. And so we'll kind of be guilty and say, you know, I want to make up for that guilt. I'm going to go do something really nice or good for somebody to get rid of that guilt. Or we might work at it by doing the opposite and really beating ourselves up. Oh, you're a terrible person. Why did you ever do that? And we just kind of crush down ourselves as kind of a self-imposed punishment. Why? To get rid of our guilt. Or we might try to weave in religion in some way and say, you know what, I I, I shouldn't have done that or I shouldn't have said that or whatever. You know what I need to start doing? I need to start having more religion in my life. And so let me start reading the Bible more or attending church more regularly. And so we go to great lengths to try to work off our guilt Sadly, friends, both approaches, whether denying guilt or trying to work off our guilt, are unbiblical and ultimately ineffective. God has a better way. God has a better way. But I didn't say it's an easy way. Because, in fact, the biblical path is the exact opposite of these two approaches. Instead of denying our guilt... 
we must confess our guilt. Instead of working off our guilt, we must humbly receive what Christ has accomplished on the cross. God's way requires both. Full ownership of our guilt and full ownership of what Christ has accomplished for you and I. Not one or the other, but both. And when we embrace both, then we find hope. Amen? So we're in the midst of a series, friends, called Jesus is Greater, Finding Hope in the Midst of Life's Struggles. We've been covering topics like anger and temptation and uh, doubt, and we're going to cover more topics in the future like depression and forgiveness and so on. Things that we struggle with. Well, today we're going to focus and I hope understand and believe the hope that Jesus provides for guilt. And really just going to boil it down to two simple points. First, Jesus removes our final guilt, and Jesus removes our ongoing guilt. All right, so that's where we're going to go here today. So let's start with Jesus removes our final guilt. When we believe in Christ, we can rest assured that you will stand forgiven on Judgment Day. You will be found not guilty on Judgment Day. That's where we're going to end up at this point. But let me backtrack a bit and show us how we get biblically to this point. All right? So let me... Amen. How do we get here? What is guilt? Let's ask that question. From a biblical perspective, what is guilt? From the biblical perspective, guilt is our just condemnation before God because of our sin, our willful violation of God's law. God is the moral lawgiver and the judge of all of humanity. Scripture is clear that humanity stands guilty before God. We violate the laws that are written on our hearts as well as what we find in the Word of God. So whether you have a copy of Scripture or not, the Bible says that we all stand guilty of breaking God's law. You don't have to have a copy of the Bible to have violated God's law. Think of the second half of the Ten Commandments. And think about around the world, people have these things etched in their hearts. Have you ever dishonored your parents? Have you ever lied, stolen, coveted? Guilty, 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 right? We're all guilty. Romans 3.19 and 20 then says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So in other words, if you think about the law, whether written on our hearts or written in the Word of God, all of us stand guilty. No one can boast before God that they have kept the law of God perfectly. And so therefore, Romans 3.23 comes along and says immediately afterwards, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So all of humanity stands guilty before God. It's a rough start, isn't it? So going back to our earlier discussion, it's futile to deny our guilt. I know you might read something or hear something on the TV that 
guilt is unhealthy, and there is a sense in which, yes, it is, but there is also a biblical sense in which it's unhealthy to try to pretend that you have no guilt. One article put it this way when it said, guilt is a fact of life because sin is a fact of life. Friends, this is reality because, according to God, this is how He operates. He's the lawgiver. He's the one who has made us. He's the one who expects obedience. And He is the final judge. This is His universe. Not ours. And I know that cuts against our proud nature, doesn't it? But we need to be in a place where... We do not deny our guilt, but acknowledge our guilt before God. And this is really key. Get this, please. There is no forgiveness without our confession of sin. You're not going to have your guilt taken away unless you first confess it. So in a real sense, hear me out, guilt is actually a good thing, understood properly. Understood in God's universe, guilt is a good thing. It's God's merciful warning bell saying you've done something wrong. You have violated my commands. You need to turn from your sin and you need to repent. So when we hear that word guilt in our culture, usually it's just slapped around with defiance. It's a terrible, evil thing. No, it's not understood properly. It's God's merciful way of getting our attention that what is woven in our hearts. So we're guilty. God knows that. And so what does He do about it? He didn't have to do anything, by the way. We, we do it ourselves. But he didn't have to, but He does. And He knows that we are guilty. So we look in the Old Testament, which Adam referred to earlier in Micah, and we see that how God established His Old Testament sacrificial system to atone for sins. And when we read the Old Testament, make no mistake, there was forgiveness and cleansing that occurred in the Old Testament days. David says in Psalm 32, 5, I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. So David experienced forgiveness along with others in the Old Testament. But God did something greater with Jesus. Greater with Jesus. What did he do? Well, the forgiveness in the Old Testament was always a temporal forgiveness, never a permanent final forgiveness. Moreover, it didn't clean the conscience to the same depth and degree as we now find in the New Testament with Jesus established. Our consciences are cleansed more so. We see this in the book of Hebrews, for example. In chapter 9, verse 13 and 14, it says, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer, speaking of the old covenant, sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? So in other words, what Hebrews is saying is, look, if in the Old Testament they experienced cleansing and forgiveness, how much more so now in light of what Jesus has done? What's he done? How did this happen? Well, then, just to remind ourselves of basic gospel truths, Jesus is fully God, and he took on humanity. He lived this sinless, perfect life so that when he died on the cross, he wasn't dying for his own sin or guilt. But when he died, he died for our sins, so that when a person believes in Christ, all of their sins are forgiven. 
Ephesians 1.7 says, In Him, Christ, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. Because of Christ's sacrifice, when you believe in Him, all of your sins are forgiven, past, present, and future. You're no longer guilty before God. Romans 8.1, great verse. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you believe in Christ, you are no longer under God's condemnation. It is impossible for you to lose your salvation. It is impossible for you, for you to move from a place of acceptance before God to a place of judgment. You are no longer under condemnation. God will not remember your sins anymore. It's not that God is forgetful. It's not that He doesn't know about those sins. It's just that He chooses not to hold them against you anymore. Indeed, this was part of the new covenant that was promised long before Christ. Jeremiah 31-34 says, For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. That's amazing, isn't it? All of your sins wiped out. And that would be great if that was just the end of the story right there. God is incredibly gracious. But God goes even further. He does even more. God gives us also the righteousness of Christ. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We are justified by faith. What Luther got there meaning that we are declared righteous before God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake He made Him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Friends, when God sees us, He doesn't see our sin, and consequently our guilt, but He sees the righteousness of Christ. I think an analogy... As, as flimsy as it is, but as best I could come up with, would be when you put on a pair of sunglasses. Once you put on that pair of sunglasses, it makes everything you see tinted, right? Right? It's still the same people and objects in front of you, but now you see them through the lenses of that sunglasses, and it looks darker, right? Right? Nothing's changed. It's still the same person or object, but you see them differently. And in the same way, because of who Christ is and what He did for on the cross, when God sees you and I, He still sees you, but He sees you through the lens of Christ. And so He sees perfect righteousness. Not because we are perfectly righteous in ourselves, but because of what Christ has done for us. And it has been given to us. Isn't that amazing? My hope and prayer is that folks here today will not just see, this is wishful thinking, but this is objective reality. We're no longer guilty. and We receive the, the righteousness of Christ, but some people have a hard time accepting that reality. Sometimes Christians have a hard time accepting that God really forgives all of their sins, especially if they've done something really bad in the past. 
Friends, let me tell you, based on the authority of God's Word, no matter what sin you have done, no matter how heinous, or no matter how many times, God can wipe away all of your sin. There's really only one sin that He cannot forgive, and that is rejecting Christ. But once you've received Christ, all of your sin is forgiven. Look at the Apostle Paul. Right? Before his conversion, Paul was a murderer. He was a murderer. Biblically speaking, that's the worst sin we can do to one another. You're taking the life of someone who's made in the image of God. Paul was a murderer. Yet God forgave him. And it wasn't just like God forgave him and shoved him in a corner and kind of was embarrassed that he forgave Paul and didn't want anything to do more with Paul. No, no, no. He shoved Paul out there to be the apostle to the Gentiles and gave him this incredible commission because he was cleansed. He was washed away. All of his sins. He planted countless churches in the Roman Empire and he wrote half of the books in the New Testament and he left this indelible mark on the faith. God cleansed and forgave him and sent him out, even though he was a murderer. We can't say, oh, we've out the grace of God. I look at my life before I came to know Christ, and I was no murderer. And yeah, sure, I would display some noble traits on occasion, but I was often a foul-mouthed, prideful, blasphemer. I hardly ever thought of God or gave Him glory in my life. I was greedy, cruel at times, deceptive, a gossip. I can say more, but that's enough. I hopefully you get my point. You don't need to hear it anyway. Yet God forgave all my There is no past sin He cannot forgive. So let me ask you, do you struggle with guilt? I know, I've, I know people sometimes and they, they struggle with guilt and maybe a sin they've done in the past that they will bottle that up for years and even decades. Friends, God doesn't forgive you so that you, you remain shackled by guilt. It's a package deal. He wants to forgive you so that you walk away from guilt. He wants you not only to be forgiven in the heavenly realms in the judicial sense, but in the real practical, practical experiential sense. He wants you to feel forgiven. He wants you to experience freedom. And we need to remember that it's really not about us, is it? It's about what Christ did. He made an all-sufficient atonement. When He died on the cross in John 19.30, He says, It is finished. It is finished. There's nothing we need to add to it. So going back to the person who feels like, man, I've got to work it off. I've got to work off this guilt. Let me tell you something. Your, your efforts are completely unnecessary. Jesus paid it all. You don't need to do anything to add to His finished work. And if I could be candid and blunt, you're actually robbing God of His glory. 
by clinging to guilt, you're in essence saying that, Jesus, what you did was not enough. Now, I know no one would want to come out and say that, but in effect, that's what we're doing when we do that. I think rather than trying to work off our guilt, let us just come with open hands and receive the forgiveness that God offers to anyone who calls on the name of the Lord and bring Him glory for this. Isaiah 43, 25, the Lord says, I, I am He who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. Did you get that? For my own sake. And I will not remember your sins. God is glorified by pardoning our guilt. He's glorified. He shows His character. He shows His character by being just and holy and giving us guilt because we violate His laws. But He also shows His grace, His grace, His mercy by forgiving all of our sin and washing away our guilt. We just need to believe it. Amen? So Jesus removes our final guilt we can rest assured that we will stand forgiven on Judgment Day. Does that bless you? I hope that it does. But what about the here and now? All of our sins are, are forgiven, but, but the daily life, what we experience after we've trusted Christ, where we might continue, we still do struggle with sin, every Christian. We know that that sin will lead to inevitably guilt and hinder our fellowship with God. Well, how do we deal with ongoing guilt? Well, Jesus tells us we should regularly, if not daily, pray for, God, for us to confess our sins to God. In Matthew 6.12, in the Lord's Prayer, one of the six elements that should be part of our regular prayer lives, Jesus says we're to pray, forgive us our debts. Jesus is not talking about finances here. He's talking about sin. We owe God obedience, but we default. We owe a sin debt. And so we ask Him to forgive us, not in the sense of conversion. This, is to, this prayer is for Christians. Not in the sense of conversion, but in the sense of ongoing, regular cleansing of our sin. And friends, that really should be part of our prayer lives, that we ask the Lord for forgiveness for known sins. Known sins. 1 John 1.9 offers this wonderful promise if we do. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So again, this isn't a prayer of conversion or salvation. This is for a Christian ongoing. When you sin, we should pray and expect that God will forgive us and cleanse us of all of our sin. What great news is that? But we have that responsibility, don't we? to come regularly before the Lord. I think if we don't, you know what happens? If we kind of let that slide, there's a snowball effect. And so when you just start letting that thing go and not asking the Lord to forgive this, your heart and your conscience starts getting number and that snowball just starts getting bigger and bigger and bigger and before you know it, boom, it could just steamroll you under. You don't lose your salvation, but you can get in a heap of mess, spiritually speaking. That's why I think a Christian every day should have some point where they see that snowball that is built up in their hearts, and they should come along and kick it. And make sure that it doesn't start getting bigger. Regularly coming before, asking the Lord, cleanse me of things I have done wrong today. 
you never graduate past that. I don't care who you are as a Christian. So in addition to known sins, we should also search our hearts for unknown sins. Did you know that? Psalm 139, 23-24 says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. I don't know about you, but most of us don't like, when we think of things that are unpleasant to us, we push them out of our mind, right? And sin is one of those things. But we should ask the Lord to convict us and make known to us things that are giving us, are in our conscience, some guilt. Sometimes things that we are not even aware of, that we bury down. Maybe it's something that has happened in the past or we have done. And we have an amazing ability to sort of put these things out of our minds. We should ask the Lord to reveal those things. Or maybe it's an area of disobedience in our Christian lives where we like to rationalize it away or compare ourselves to others. And we say, you know, I, I know that uh, I'm a pretty generous guy, God, and so I'm going to really think a lot about that. And even though I might stretch the truth and lie sometimes, I don't want to think about that. I'm going to focus on how I'm a very generous person. Or we're very committed to serving in the local church, but we very rarely share our faith outside of the church. Well, that's great that we serve in the local church, but God also wants us to be obedient in proclaiming the gospel. So friends, we need to regularly confess known sins and then say, Lord, what are unknown things in my heart that your spirit can reveal to me today so that we walk in greater forgiveness and cleansing? and greater fellowship with God. Friends, these promises are true. He always cleanses and removes guilt. His grace never runs out. You sometimes feel like that? Like, Lord, I've come before you a million times about this. Are you going to shut the door on me? He never does. He tells us to forgive each other 70 times 7, meaning unlimited forgiveness. How much more will He forgive? How much more will He forgive? He does the same. Nehemiah 9.17, I love this verse. It says, you are a God ready to forgive. He's ready. He wants to forgive you. And if you're sincere in your confession, you will experience that real, deep, existential cleansing in your spirit. God removes the guilt whether you've done something like the Apostle Paul, who was a murderer, or whether it's something small and maybe seemingly insignificant, God wipes it all clean. And I think every human heart longs to be clean, don't we? And we only have that if we confess and come clean before God. I love Proverbs 28:13. It says, Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Well, as we close, it's very fitting that we celebrate the Lord's Supper today. Jesus established the Lord's Supper on the night of His crucifixion as a ceremony for the church to celebrate on a regular basis. The Lord's Supper, friends, is a visible, tangible reminder of the sacrifice that Jesus paid on the cross. The bread, of course, symbolizes His broken body on behalf of His people dying for our sins. And the cup symbolizes the new covenant that he inaugurated. And as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper, I want us to remember what we've discussed here today about guilt. Confession comes 
before cleansing. And the Scripture tells us that before we take the Lord's Supper, we need to confess our sins to God. Not deny Him, as we might be prone to do, but to confess them so that they're cleansed. And also, we should rejoice that Christ's sacrifice was sufficient. The Lord's Supper should be a sober time of reflection, but it should also be a time of great celebration and joy in our hearts because we trust that Jesus Christ died for our sins and we don't have to keep trying to working them off. We trust that what He did was enough and it was sufficient. We receive with joy and gratitude what He has done and we simply believe and trust. Amen? So our hearts should be filled with joy as we celebrate the Lord's Supper. He said it is finished. We know that we will stand before God on Judgment Day with a clean slate and the righteousness of Christ, and we can also trust that He will constantly and daily and instantly remove our guilt when we confess it to Him. Amen? Amen. Jesus is greater. 